0: There is no light Welcome to Valley Christian Church. We hope you enjoy this message and we would love for you to join us on Sunday mornings at 1030. We're located at 432 East Pleasant in Tulare. After listening to this message, take a moment to browse our website for current and upcoming events. It is our prayer that ultimately you learn to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, if you'll grab your Bible, we're going to be in Matthew 12 this morning. I think it's very interesting how the Lord works in, in many different ways, in many different lives, but here, last week, we were talking about how the Lord was saying, hey, come to me if you're weary, come to me if you're, you're broken, come to me, and I will give you rest, and then we get into chapter 12 of Matthew, and uh, it's, uh, you know, he gives us a beautiful picture of who the Father is without a whole lot of commentary. But it's very pointed to the the Pharisees that are around. And Jesus does this by just describing, or, or, or Matthew tells us this, just describing what Jesus did. And it starts out in Matthew 12. It says, At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of the grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to them, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. So here's a story. It's the Sabbath, and the Sabbath for them is, is Saturday, and they've been doing what they've done every Saturday. Uh, they've no doubt already either been, they've already been to synagogue or they're going to synagogue or kind of don't quite know which one it is. But if they were coming from synagogue, they're walking through the fields and they haven't eaten at all. So the disciples start to pick the heads of the grain, uh, uh, you know, of the wheat there and, and to eat some of it. Now, when you go to Israel, you'd be very surprised at how much produce they have. Uh, They actually supplied uh, most of Europe for many years of all the fruits and vegetables and grains and different things. And, you know, lately Spain has kind of taken that over because uh, a lot of people are not too keen on the Jews. They don't want to give them money buying their fruits and vegetables. But for years they produced all of that stuff throughout Europe, the palm trees and many other items. So Israel's not all sand and, you know, sand and stone. Now, there's a lot of sand. I can't even say those two words together. Sand and stone. There's a lot of it. There a lot of lava rock that you would be very surprised to see in Israel, but there is a lot of that. But they still grow stuff. Uh, they've irrigated a lot of Israel. So they're walking through, and they take some of this grain, and, and they kind of rub it together in their hands to kind of blow away the chaff, and they... And blow away the chaff, and then they have the kernels, and, and, you know, they they just throw it in the mouth. I mean, this, you know, they're left with the granola part. Uh, This was their in and out. They didn't have in and outs on the corner, you know what I'm saying? Now, this was perfectly acceptable during that time. This is not something that, uh, that was unusual. It was very uh, accepted in their culture. The Pharisees are not necessarily reacting to the fact that they took the grain. In fact, um, they're not even trespassing. According to Leviticus and Deuteronomy, as long as you didn't bring your Tupperware bowls and fill them full, you could walk through the edge of the grain fields and you could take some that was left there on purpose In Deuteronomy 24, the Lord instructed them to leave the edges of the field so widows and orphans might come and, and gather some of it. So the Pharisees were not upset that they were going through and grabbing the grain. They're upset that it was done on the day called the Sabbath. According to them, they were breaking the law. And the law was important to the Pharisees. Now as we talk about the law... We have to understand the law is a foundation of the Jewish faith. The Ten Commandments came 1,500 years before them, and they've been modifying and clarifying those laws ever since. We do the same thing today. Did you know that, that our president, both, uh, let me rephrase this, presidents, both Democrat and Republicans, when a law is produced by Congress, they get the law. And you know what they do? They make statements about that law. This is my understanding of this law and they make clarifications and it can be completely different than what Congress passed this is exactly what the Jews are doing God gave them a law and they're saying well here's my understanding of the law and they've been making all these different rules that go along with these laws they produce volumes and volumes of interpretations But in reality, we're talking about the Ten Commandments here. And the Ten Commandments turn into 622 in the Scriptures as they're expounded upon. But Jesus and his his disciples were breaking one of the commands according to the disciples. Do you know which command they were breaking? You know it, right? Somebody? Don't work on the Sabbath, right? You shall not work. Well, let's review the Ten Commandments. It's always good for us to kind of go back into the Old Testament and review the Ten Commandments. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Before we get into the actual law, I think it's important for us to, to point out the law was, was, uh, was to take people out of slavery and bondage and into freedom. Not, pe- not to put people into bondage, but to take them out. For some reason, bad religion takes this and puts you back in, you know, by the rules, you've got to follow these rules, and they put you back in the bondage. But this actually frees people from offering, you know, or uh, frees people from offending God and hurting themselves along the way. The first one is, you shall have no other gods before me. Don't pray to anything except me. Don't have any other god. And then the next one, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven or above, uh, above or on the earth, beneath or in the waters. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the fathers through the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Now, let's clarify that. Not those who have sinned, not those who have messed up, but those who hate me. Who hates God? Those that completely 100% either don't believe in Him or go against His ways, and they know that. But showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So it says don't crave something. Not wood, not stone, not crystal, not, you know, wear something around your neck that brings you some kind of luck. Now there are some Some of us have grown up in what we call a high church. Very, this is how you do things. I mean, uh, we're kind of, we're not a low church in the sense of, but we're pretty relaxed. I don't wear a tie. I don't think men should wear something around their neck that can be used to strangle them. I don't know. It's just my philosophy. But we're kind of a, in that scale of things. High church is a, a, you know, Catholic or Episcopalian, you know, very structured, very, every Sunday we say this, uh, we have this homily, we have this reading, and you follow this, you follow a pattern. That's kind of a high church. And some of these high churches have statues and images, uh, Eastern Orthodox and, and so forth, and, and you know, where we thought the statue was holy. And we have to be very careful of that. When I was in Israel, I was amazed. We went to the, what's called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And it's, it's the place that the, the Roman Catholic Church is deemed where Christ is cro- uh, Christ's cross was lifted up. And there's a stone there. And, and he was buried right there. Um, now, many scholars don't necessarily agree with that. Uh, but in 300 and something, Constantine's mom, when Constantine declared the Roman Empire Christian, his mom traveled to Israel and they said, this was it. So she said, this is it. And they built the church. So that's where it's at. That's how it came to be, that place. But, but there's a rock there on the floor. And as we entered in, I mean, people are taking stuff and they're rubbing it all over this like four foot by five or six foot rock and they're just rubbing scarves and, and, and necklaces and all this. And I'm like, I looked at our guy and said, what, what's going on here? He goes, well, they believe this is where the cross was, so therefore it's holy. And if I rub this on there, this now becomes holy and I can take it back and give it to my relatives and they'll be blessed by it. I'm like, this is so screwed up. This is exactly what God came and said, don't do. I mean, this is so ironic. I mean, think about all the churches across Europe that have pieces of wood that they say comes from the cross. They have bones of of saints and teeth and all these things that they've sent out all over the world saying this is from one of the saints. You know, there's so much wood in everybody's churches. You could build a whole house, much less one cross, the second commandment says be careful of that. That is not what God is about. God is invisible. We don't worship an item. We worship God. So it also goes on in verse 7. It says, You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his, his name. Now this one's, a, was, you know, this one's very easy to remember. In fact, the first three are very, uh, very easy to remember because they're all about God don't have any other gods, don't make any other gods, and His name is holy. This means we have to be careful with our humor. We have to be careful of, oh my God, our Lord, our Jesus. We have to be careful with His name, or I swear to God, Unfortunately, Christians take the Lord's name in vain all the time. And we have to come back and look at this and say, what should I be doing? And Lord, remind me every time I use one of those terms in that way, in a derogatory way, uh, you know, it, it, that, that you should remind me to get me on the right path to not do that. You know, it's interesting, and I've said this before, no one swears by the name of Muhammad. No one goes, oh, Buddha! You know, we we joke, but it's true. It's the Lord's name they take in vain. We have to be careful how and where and when we use his name. Now, I don't mean you can't ever say his name. I mean, the the Jews have taken this to the point where they can't even write the name of God. They put G and they put a line and D because you can't write out the whole name of God. I mean, you can take it to the extreme. But his name is beautiful. Beautiful. I mean, his name is a wonderful name. It should be spoken aloud, and prayer should be spoken aloud in Bible study and conversations. We try to use the name uh, Jesus with our son. We sit down for dinner, and and, and we try to get him to pray, and it's hilarious. His prayers are awesome. So simple, so funny, yet so true. We have to be careful when we use his name. Number four, it says... Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, your son or daughter, nor a manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor nor the alien within your gates. So those guys from outer space, I mean um, from other countries. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, But he rested on the seventh day, therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. God is saying, if I can rest, then certainly you can rest. So, what I want you to do is for one 24 hour period, I want you to rest. Now, back then you had a lot of servants in your household, they were saying, don't make them work, don't make your oxen work, just rest. And we're going to talk about rest a little bit more later. But our God is a great God because he commands us to rest. I mean, like a good daddy, right? It's time for a nap, son. No! Son, if you take a short nap, we can play later. I always That's the excuse I use. Short, oh, short nap? Oh, okay. And then he goes in and he takes a three-hour nap. And I'm like, yes! But I finally get him down five minutes later and then he'll scream out, Daddy! And I come Come in. And he goes, Is it morning yet? No, son, it's afternoon. It's time for your nap. Be quiet. Go to sleep. We need to rest. That's what God is doing. He's being a good daddy, saying, You need to rest. Number five is honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land, uh, land the Lord your God is giving you. This is the only command that comes with a promise. That you honor your father and mother. Your days are extended on this earth. You know how to remember this one? Well, number five is you stay alive. You obey commandment number five, you live longer. I'm going to teach my son this one. But it's, it's not just obey. It's not just, oh, you've got to do every single thing they ever said. And if you don't, then that's it. You're not going to live a long life. What it's talking about is respect here. To show respect. I need to honor my father and mother. I need to honor my wife's father and mother. You know, we always hate the in-laws, right? I mean, that's what the world tells us that we should do, right? We have to honor them. That doesn't mean to agree. This can be very difficult, as in my case. No, I'm joking. He's sitting right over there. Lives with us. But it's to listen to. It means that every time I I should not be irritated. And I have to remember, you know what? I get on his nerves as much as he gets on my nerves. And I'm not saying he gets on my nerves all the time. I'm just saying that. You know, that, that we all get on each other's nerves to a certain extent, don't we? Because we're all different. But we should honor our parents by listening to them. It doesn't mean agreeing with them on every little thing. But it means giving them the respect to sit there and actually listen. And then we've got to think about it a little bit. Not like a child that just goes, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Or a husband. Okay, well we won't go there. We need to honor them. And then number six is you've got to think of a six-shooter. You shall not murder. That's an easy one to remember also. Don't take innocent life. Don't uh, take the law into your own hands. And number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Your husband or your wife is the only one that you should be intimate with. And this is according to the Bible, and it should be the opposite sex. That's the Word of God, and it does not change. Number eight, you shall not steal. I mean, this this should be a simple one, but it's so complicated, isn't it? We live in a world that we justify everything. So we have to continually teach our children, no, that's not yours. We don't take it. No, you just can't have it because you want it. We've got to teach them that. And then there's number nine, uh, verse 16, you shall not give false witness uh, or false testimony against your neighbor. You don't lie, you tell the truth. You be the person that when someone says about you, I don't always agree with that person, but man, they've never lied to me. Now that's a, good, that's a good reputation to have, right? I don't agree with them. I'm totally at the opposite end, but they've never lied to me. They've never treated me. Like, you know, like an idiot. You know, relationships are based on truth. You want a good relationship? Tell the truth, but you've got to do it in the, in the Christ-like way. You've got to do it with grace, right? And then the last one here, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant or his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. You know, their car, their boat, their SUV, their camper, their children, their iPads, their waistline their hairdo, their lifestyle, their job. We have to stop wanting what everybody else has because it's wrecking our lives. It's wrecking our relationships with them. See, our relationship is being wrecked when we want all these things. Our relationship with God is being wrecked. And if you follow this commandment, man, you will be much happier because you won't be focused on what everybody else has. You'll be focused on what the Lord's provided for you. It's good for us to go back and review these 10 commandments ever so often. So now let's jump back to the disciples and the Pharisees are accusing the disciples of breaking what command? The 4th command, working on the Sabbath. The Pharisees are saying, "You are not keeping the Sabbath holy." And according to our notes, according to our rules, according to our rulings, picking grain is harvesting. That is work. In fact, they came up with 39 different definitions of the word work that are not in the Bible. Even today, you go to Israel, you get on an elevator in a hotel on the Sabbath from, from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. You can't push the button. If you do, nothing will, nothing will, will happen. The elevator's just, there's, there's a law. You have to have two elevators One elevator stops at the first floor and the third floor and the fifth floor and the the odd floors and the other one stops at the even floors and you just get in you have to wait. They're pre-programmed so therefore they're not necessarily working. But if you push the button that's considered work and that's against the law. I mean how ludicrous can we get, right? Pushing a button. Now back then it wasn't pushing a button but they had all their different things about that. They're going, you guys are harvesting, how dare you? Not only that, you, you took rain, grain and you rubbed it together. That's threshing, and that's one of our rules, too. You can't thresh. Threshing is working. Then you blew away, you blew away the chaff. That, that, that's, we've ruled that. That's working, too. You've broke three different working rules. How dare you do that? You're doing all kinds of bad things. You're like, no, I wasn't. I was just eating a little granola. I was hungry. Well, then you ate it, and that means you prepared a meal, and that's another rule you broke, preparing a meal on the Sabbath. You see what I'm saying? There's just rule after rule after rule. I mean, you can can understand how ridiculous legalism can get, and yet these guys, they're going after them. They're going, you broke the law, and this is an inflexible, legalistic attitude that drives people away from God, and unfortunately, In almost every church, there's somebody that is like this. They have that legalistic attitude, and it actually drives people away from God because they're so inflexible. Now, I'm not talking about our church. I'm talking about all the other churches down the road, right? Well, Jesus takes them on. He answers them. Haven't you heard what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God. And he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priest. Jesus brings up a situation where David broke Sabbath law and temple law on top of that. And even to this day, King David is held in high esteem. They think they have his bones and they think they know where his coffin was and you can actually go and see it and take pictures of it. And of course the men have to go on one side and the women have to go on the other side. They can't mix. I don't know why. You're just looking at a coffin. But that's one of the rules. Now you might remember David was running from Saul and, and, and he, you know, he was hiding and his, his men, they were hungry and they needed something to eat. So they go to the, to the, the temple and, and talk to the priests there, and they ate the showbread. Now what the showbread is, is once a week they would bring in 12 loaves of bread into the holy place of the temple. Now we're not talking the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the, Coven- I mean, the Ark of the Covenant was, but just right outside of the area was the holy place. And the 12 loaves were baked every week on that, and they were left in there, and it was a symbol of, of God's provision to the 12 tribes of Israel. And at the end of that time, as they were replaced, the priests were allowed to eat that bread, showing that God was taking care of the priest also. It was all full of, of symbolism. You know, you know someday the, the Messiah would come and he would be the bread of life. I mean, you can go on and on off, off of this thing. But the priests were allowed to eat it. So David and the guys show up on the Sabbath and they're saying, we're hungry. And the priest said, well, all we have is the showbread; We'll give it to you. And they gave it to them. And it was okay because God's hand was on David. And God didn't want to be inflexible with him. What, you know, God being inflexible? No. For some reason, we're, we're, we, we grew up thinking and being taught that God is inflexible. But Jesus came to say, no, the Sabbath was actually made for man, not man made for Sabbath. Not only that, in verse 5 it says, Or haven't you read in the law that, that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple desecrate the day and yet are innocent? And Jesus is right on this. In the book of Numbers, it lists out what the priest is to do on the Sabbath. What did the priest do on the Sabbath? They work. They break the law, and yet it's acceptable, just like every pastor does you know, in, in, in almost every church across this nation. Now, we can debate whether, you know, should we have church on the Sabbath? A lot of churches have, you know, church on Saturday because it's the Sabbath. I'm, I hate to tell them, really, it starts at Friday night, and it goes to Saturday night. So, which one is it? You know, and you can, you can be inflexible and get on that and, and be wholer now and, and say, well, our church does it the right way because we meet on Saturday. Well, we meet on Sunday because it's the day that the Lord rose from the dead. That's why we meet on Sundays. See, the important thing is that God is flexible. And he's telling the Pharisees, and you are not. I tell you that no that one greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would have condemned the innocent. Now, this is the second time that Jesus has quoted Hosea to these guys. I mean, he's just totally letting them have it because they understand what Hosea wrote. You know, we think of Hosea, we go, oh, okay, that was one of the minor prophets. Now, the Pharisees knew the Scripture. From little they were taught, so as soon as Jesus said, you know, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, they knew exactly what he was talking about here, and he is just letting them have it. You have no mercy, do you? You would have rebuked, you wouldn't have rebuked me if you understood the prophet Hosea and what he said. So then, in verse nine, he says, "Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there." Now, another writer in the Gospels tells us it was his, his right hand, and it wasn't necessarily, from what we gather, a birth defect. The way the Greek was written, um, some type of accident or disease happened, and you know he lost the use of his hand. Um, you know, and, and what happens when you don't use something? You get a cast for a long time. What happens? The, the muscle what? Atrophies, right? In other words, it shrivels up. You can't use it. Well, something happened where this man, his hand literally just shriveled up, and he could not use it. Now, have you ever lost the use of your dominant hand or dominant foot? Life can become a little difficult, can't it? It, it can be, you know, it, challenging, And it says here, looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, they ask him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They're trying to set him up. Now Mark and Luke both tell the story. Mark says here, uh, another time he went to the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them, and in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. These guys are really, really mad. Have you ever wanted to kill somebody? I mean, we say it all the time. Oh, I could just kill that person. These guys really did want to kill him. And they went out, and they started planning it. I mean, we look at this and say, man, why are they so mad? Well, there's lots of reasons here. First of all, they set them up and it backfired on them. They set them up completely. I mean, it's really obvious obvious here. They're baiting Jesus to do exactly what Jesus will end up doing. And they're trying to cause conflict. I mean, have you ever been set up and then later you realize, oh, man, they set me up. That's exactly what they're trying to do here. You know, One of the best pieces of advice you know, my, uh, one of my old pastors gave me years ago was never take a meeting without knowing the topic. And it doesn't mean you need to know every little detail, but you at least need to know the topic, and that way when you go into that meeting, you don't get blindsided because people try to do what? We try to manipulate each other, don't we? Oh, no, no, we're, we're church people, we don't do that. Only business world does that, right? We try to manipulate each other. We try to box each other in. Well, if I can say it this way, then they only can respond in this way. This is what's happening to Jesus on a daily basis. They're doing little things trying to set him up. I mean, how do you trap a mouse? You put something down to attract him, right? Cheese. Now, in my house, we can't do that, not that we have mice run around, but in our house, because Brandon would try to go eat the cheese. He likes cheese. But this is what they're doing. They're trying to trap him. Let's put something in his way that will make him violate the Sabbath. Well, how do you do this with Jesus? You put a hurting person there. You put somebody who needs help. You you put somebody there that needs Jesus in their life. And what's going to happen? Jesus is going to respond. Jesus is attracted to a hurting people. He wants to help them. And this is a great thing about our Lord. He wants to help those who are hurting. See, that's his way, and even his enemies knew that. See, a God who who gravitates toward the perfect. I mean, I mean, no, no, no. God gravitates toward the imperfect. God gravitates toward the hurting. See, a God who, who doesn't gravitate toward the able but it, he gravitates toward the disabled, a God who, who you know, knows who's in the room and who is hurting, who is hurting the most and who he wants to heal and who he wants to help. There are people in the room who have withered souls, but they were out to get Jesus. Instead, who did he go to? He went to the one who had the withered hand, the innocent. I See, I believe we're going to meet all these guys in heaven, especially, I mean, they're going to have long lines of all the people who interacted, you know, physically interacted with Christ. And it's going to be, yeah, I was the guy with the withered hand. You know, in, uh, on, in the synagogue, when, when the Pharisees tried to set me up, and I mean, it's going to be a great conversation. Jesus was attracted to these guys. Now, these other guys are trying to set them up. By not accepting Jesus, they won't be there. It's ironic. Jesus was attracted to them as well. He wants to win the Pharisees over, he wants to win those that have a hardened heart over. It's just that they won't come over. Red Rover, Red Rover. The Pharisees have seen Jesus heal so many people that they made a, an official ruling in one of their meetings that Jesus' job was what? A healer. That was his official title. They made a ruling about that. And the reason why, I mean, it's really cool. Uh, he didn't say that, that this is my occupation. That's what they just determined it was. I mean, but for the Pharisees, this was a big deal. Because they made a ruling, they made Jesus just like a fisherman. They made Jesus just like a baker. They made Jesus, you know, just like a farmer. And if those guys can't work on a Saturday, then neither can Jesus. If his job was healer, then therefore he couldn't work on the Sabbath. I mean, this is legalistically, religiously dysfunctional, isn't it? They're accusing Jesus of being exactly who he is. What do your enemies say about you? Has it ever been a compliment That's exactly what they're doing here. Even Jesus' enemies insulted him, and it was a compliment. So Jesus says to the guy, step forward. What do you think, guys? Is it lawful, uh, lawful for me to heal this guy? Is it lawful for me to help this person or not? What do you guys think? And they didn't say anything. They didn't know what to say. They had him trapped, and all of a sudden it was turned around. You know, The tables were turned on them. The scriptures say that Jesus got mad. And only, time, only a few times in scriptures does it say that Jesus got mad. So when he does, we need to pay attention. What made Jesus mad? He was grieved by the hardness of their hearts. We need to be careful and watch out not to allow our hearts to, to get to a part where we're so hardened that when Christ tries to act, we go, uh-uh. No, no, we don't do that around here. Man, we got to be careful. Their Pharisees were judgmental and hypocritical. Jesus struggled with how they twisted and uh, what he wanted on this planet and his plan, and and they made him mad that they just stood there. They embarrassed this guy, this suffering man. They, They put him in the middle of the room. They made a mockery of him. They could care less whether his hand was shriveled or not because they were using him. Anytime someone uses somebody else, it makes God mad. Let's not use each other. Is it lawful for me to heal this guy? Can I get an answer? Is it lawful? You're going to accuse me of breaking the law, so is it lawful? And they didn't say a word. In Matthew 12, 11, it said, If any of, of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? I don't think so, he says to them. Why does he say this? Because we all justify everything, don't we? I mean, my, my sheep fell down into that, that little canyon there. I had to rescue him, that, uh, rescue the sheep. That's my livelihood. I ha- so, therefore, I'm justified to get my sheep out on the Sabbath. If you didn't, it wouldn't survive. And he says, and this man. Is he not worth more to you than a sheep? How much more valuable is, is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Jesus also tells him what? The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, what, did, well, you know, what does the word Lord mean? It means master or boss or, or ruler? Jesus is saying, I am the boss of you. And this is why they wanted to kill him. This is why they were mad at him. He's the only one who'd ever talked to them like that. And they couldn't, you know, they didn't think he could back it up. But they couldn't do anything about it because he was going to heal this guy. What are they going to do? He confronts them in public. And because he's the Lord of the Sabbath, and he's changing all the rules, he's breaking their view of the Ten Commandments. You know, I mean, he even said, what was, what was it Jesus said about him being greater than the temple? I mean, the temple, that's the holiest site we have. You can imagine the discussions. Oh, man, we've got to take care of this guy. Let's go talk to Herodians. No, they haven't talked to the Herodians in decades. They hated the Herodians. They tried to limit every you know, interaction with this family group. They were enemies. This is like Republicans and Democrats. They can't sit down at the same table. Very few Republicans and Democrats can Luckily, I have friends that are a different political uh, ideology than myself, and, and, and we love each other enough that we can have discussion and walk away, and we're still friends. But I mean this is the wor- I mean this is like left-wing, right-wing and put them in the same room. I mean it's going to be a fight. But I love what Jesus does with his anger. He lets them have it all the while staying in control. Hey, you. Your hand. Step forward. Stretch forth your hand. Let me see it. Imagine you're there and you know this guy. I mean, maybe you've even given this guy some, some money to be able to live because, you know, there was no disability insurance. There was no Social Security insurance, no welfare. He had one good hand. Have You ever tried working with one good hand? I mean, to try to fish, try to farm, run a shop, carry things. What occupation could you have if you only had one hand? You'd be limited, right? So maybe you're on a team that that tries to help these people out that are, you know, you know, those that are that are disabled, and you're sitting there going, let me help them out. Maybe you're on that team, and the Pharisees have already embarrassed this guy, and now Jesus says, Dude, come on up. And you're like, Man, back off, Jesus. He can't stretch out his hand. It's withered. Can't you see it? What are you doing? You see, here ability is meeting disability, and one of them is going to win. Either Jesus can heal the guy or he can't. One of the two. But could you imagine the fear for this man? Thinking, stretch it forward. What do you mean? My hand won't work. Everyone has told this guy there's no hope. I'm sure he's gone to all the doctors. He's seen all the healers he can see, he can see, done everything he can to get this hand to work again. And now Jesus says, stretch forth your hand. He looks at Jesus and he does what Jesus says. Could you imagine, could you feel the tension in the room? The Pharisees are just staring at this guy going, don't, don't do it, don't, don't do it. He reaches out and stretches out his hand, and it starts to work, and the strength starts to come back. Could you imagine if maybe his son was there, and his son comes running up, he could pick up his son with both hands all of a sudden, or maybe his wife is there, and he can hold her again like he wants. I mean, who knows? This is an amazing story, and the Pharisees went out and they tried to, and they basically said, "It's time to kill him." Man. Now, how do we apply this to our lives? Well, we need to think about our own disabilities. It may be a physical one, but it may be something completely different. You know, the older I get, I start to understand my disabilities, my glaring weaknesses that I have. And life tends to wither our hands, doesn't it? Life tends to, oh, you got a weakness, we're going to go after that weakness. You know, just watch the football games today. What what is football all about? Exploding the weaknesses of the other team, right? That's what life does. And the Lord says, well, don't worry about that hand, Alan. You still have the other hand. I'd get you a left-handed ministry, right? No. The Lord says, Alan, where is your most embarrassing disability? That thing you want to hide. I want to take you to the place where I can heal that disability in your life. And I want to give you success because it's not about your disability. It's, you know, it's about you being weak and me being made strong because people start to see me through that disability because they're sitting there going, there's no way Alan could do that. There's no way so-and-so could do that without God's help. the stuff that you know you're not good at that's where God can shine especially if we allow him to this is where he wants to meet up it's a painful place it can be a hard place but man the Lord I feel better in my strengths Lord I don't want to go that direction and the Lord says no I want to show people who I am through you not how good you are in your weakness I am made strong. This guy's life was changed because he had a disability. So what is your disability? What is your withered hand? Well, I don't have one. Yeah, right, Pharisee. We all have one. We all have a disability, and the Lord begins to reveal to us things that we don't like, not to be mean, but to bring healing into our life. And that healing doesn't start until we start to stretch forth our hand in front of God. And that's when we discover God's grace. Are you willing to discover God's grace? Are you willing to look at your own life and say, this is my weakness, Lord. I need this to be healed. I need this to be worked on. And then your glory can shine. Imagine if we did that as an individual. But imagine if we did that as a church. Imagine if all the churches started doing that. How we could change this world. And it starts with one man having a glaring disability saying, God, okay, I'll stretch out my hand. Are you willing to stretch out your hand? Well, Let's pray as the guys come up and lead us in a song. Mm. Lord, we are so thankful for you in our lives, but sometimes we need to be reminded of our weaknesses. Sometimes you can remind us of those weaknesses so we can see you work in this world, that we can see you work in our own lives, that through our weakness you can be made strong. I pray, Lord, that we're willing to step up. We're willing to be embarrassed in a sense. We're willing to be looked at but we're willing to stand there in front of you and say, Yeah, this is my weakness. Please heal me. Mm. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you. And may you realize how much He loves you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.